the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Text winter to The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. All to Jesus I surrender all to
of that wilderness when he came out of that wilderness victorious having defeated the devil not having given on one point he began to preach we find this in Matthew the fourth chapter verse 17 Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the fishing boat with their father, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Oh, Jesus... I'm overwhelmed by his mercy and his love. He came and was born as a baby, grew up in this world, met the devil, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he began to preach, repent, the kingdom of God is here. What is the kingdom of God? It is a restoration, it is a healing, it is the removal of every curse. It is the love of God made manifest in Jesus. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, and with me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We're glad you're here. We have much to share with you. I'm overwhelmed today with the love of God. We're going to read some more of Pilgrim's Progress today. But before we start, I wanted to just comment on this passage of Matthew 3. 
that rage is shared. I love this passage because it, when we look at the narratives, when we look at the gospel narratives, it's so easy to understand theological truths that can sometimes seem very confusing. Andrew and Peter had already been baptized by John the Baptist. We find that if we look at John chapter 1, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, they were expecting the Messiah, and they had gone to John the Baptist, been baptized in water, they had repented, they were living righteous lives. And then Jesus comes to these people who've already repented, and he says, come follow me. Now what I like about this is we see clearly what we've often tried to describe as the two works of grace, what John Wesley and the, the founder of the Methodist Church would call the first work of grace, which is righteousness, the second work of grace, which is consecration or holiness. So when we encounter Andrew and Peter in the story, they're already walking in righteousness. They've already repented. Yes. Then Jesus calls them to follow him, and at this point, they leave their business, they leave their family behind. They're now consecrated to the work of following God. They weren't in sin by working at their business. They weren't in sin by being with their family. It was simply that they had not yet been called by Jesus to leave those things behind and to dedicate the rest of their lives to doing the same things that Jesus did, which was to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to make disciples of all nations. So I hope that clears up any confusion that you may have had on the subject when we talk about how you need to leave everything to follow Jesus. We're not saying that those things are sin. But we're saying that that's a, the second step of consecration, where everything in our lives is subordinated to the call of God on, on each of us as an individual. He has a place for each of us in the work of his kingdom. And this fabulous truth that he did it out of love. He did it out of compassion. He came and poured out his grace for us. I'm just overwhelmed today by the love of God. As he calls us out of darkness into the light, as he makes us righteous and forgives us all of our sin, and then calls us to consecration, to be totally given for eternity to serve him. And as Alexandra said, there are many different ways that he calls us to serve. Some he will call to leave family and fishing boat. Some he will say, stay right there and minister to those that I bring to you and those around you. You'll recall, for example, the man out of whom there were so many devils cast out. They said it was legion. The devils were cast out into the swine. That man wanted to go with Jesus onto the ship. And Jesus said, no, stay here and tell the other people in this village what's happened to you he had a different calling a different witness but for the same person Jesus and the love of God I want to share with you just a bit of the story of Pilgrim's Progress if you recall 
John Bunyan was put in prison for preaching the gospel. It was 1661. He was put in prison, and there for 12 years he languished. Six years he had a short time out of prison, and they told him that if he would stop preaching, they would not put him back in jail. He said, I cannot stop preaching, and continued to preach at his prison window as people gathered outside to listen to him. And so for another six years, he was in a very hard, primitive prison. His family, in the meantime, needed financial support. How were they to survive? So they brought him the supplies, and the jailer allowed him to make shoelaces while he was in prison. And then he would give these shoelaces made to his wife, and she would take them out and sell them. And this is how the family was able to be kept together and the children cared for. Now, I want to start today as obstinate has left. He has departed. He is indifferent to the call of God. And he has a traveling companion. Now I saw in my dream after obstinate returned to the city of destruction that Christian and pliable began to talk as they walked together through the middle of the valley. Thus they began to converse. I'm glad, Christian said, that you were persuaded to come along with me. I'm not surprised that obstinate returned so quickly to the city of destruction. I think if he had felt the power and terror of the unseen as I have, he would have been persuaded to come along with us. Come, neighbor Christian, since it's just the two of us, tell me more about the wonderful things that await us when we arrive at the place to which we are going. I can better conceive of them with my mind, Christian explained, than talk about them, but since you're interested, I'll read about them from my book. And do you think the words of your book are true? Pliable asked. Yes, very sure, for the words were written by the one who cannot lie, Christian replied. Well, well said. Please tell me about these things that await us. There is an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us so that we may live in the kingdom forever, Christian explained. Well said, what else, Pliable asked. We will be given crowns of glory and clothing that will make us shine like the sun. Well, this sounds very pleasant. What else? There shall neither be crying nor sorrow, for he who is owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there, Pliable asked. We will be with the seraphim and the cherubim and creatures who will dazzle your eyes when you look at them. You will meet with thousands of those who have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but all of them are loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there will be the elders with their golden crowns. There will we see the holy virgins with their golden harps. 
There we will see men who were cut in pieces by the world, burnt in flames, eaten by beasts, drowned in the seas, suffering all of this and more for the love they have for the Lord of that place. Everyone in that place is clothed with immortality as with a robe. Hearing about this is enough to excite my heart, Pliable replied. But are these things to be enjoyed by anyone? What do we have to do to share in all these things? The Lord Christian replied, the governor of the country, has recorded in this book that if we are truly willing to have it, he will give it to us freely. Well, my good companion, I'm glad to hear about these things. Come, let's hasten our pace, Pliable replied. I cannot go as fast as I would like because of this burden that is on my back. Let's stop just a moment. We may need to ask the question, what's the difference between Christian and pliable? Christian is aware that he has a heavy burden on his back. Pliable is totally unconscious of the great burden that is on his back. It does not hinder him. He is not concerned about it. In fact, he doesn't even see it. But Christian is weighed down by the reality of his sin. And he is pursuing this course in order to be free of his sin. And the promise is that the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord of this world, that he's going to will cut him loose from all sin set him free heal him body mind and soul restore him pour out his love upon him give him grace and mercy and kindness pliable senses no need for these things i've seen men in desperate situations homelessness in fact and they say oh I'm fine don't worry about me pastor I'm getting along just fine they are totally disconnected from the reality of their desperate plight and your heart goes out to them but because they are so comfortable in their crisis there's nothing you can do to help them. They somehow are not in touch with the reality of their true condition, either physically in their homelessness or in their spiritual condition before Almighty God. This was pliable. He wanted to walk fast and quickly get to that wonderful place he wanted to go to. But he had no conscious awareness of all that was holding him back and slowing him down. So now I saw in my dream, just as they had finished talking, that they came near to a very miry swamp that was in the middle of the valley. Then suddenly both Christian and Pliable, who were not paying attention to where they were walking, fell into the swamp. The name of the swamp was Despond. They wallowed there until they were both covered with mud, Christian weighed down by the burden on his back, 
began to sink. Then Pliable said, Oh, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Honestly, said Christian, I don't know. Christian's answer offended Pliable, who angrily said to Christian, If this is the happiness you've been telling me about all the time we've been together, if we have this much difficulty at the beginning of our journey, what may we expect between now and the end of our journey? If I can get out of this swamp alive, you can have your brave country that you're so fond of talking about without me. And with that, he gave a final desperate struggle and he got out he got out of the mire on the side of the swamp that was nearest to the city of destruction and so away he went and Christian never saw him again Christian was left to struggle in the swamp of despond alone in spite of the difficulty Christian still tried to get to the side of the swamp that was the furthest from the city of destruction and nearest the narrow gate. He finally reached the edge of the swamp, but he could not, no matter how hard he tried, lift himself out of the swamp because of the heavy burden that was on his back. Just then, in my dream, I saw a man whose name was Help come to him and ask, What are you doing here? Sir, said Christian, I was told to go this way by a man called Evangelist, who directed me also to the narrow gate so that I would escape the wrath to come. And as I was going there, I fell in here. But why didn't you look for the steps? Help asked. I was so frightened that I stopped, and I stepped in the wrong way, and I fell into the swamp. Then Help said, Give me your hand. So Christian gave him his hand, and he pulled him out, and set him on solid ground, and told him to go on his way. This miry swamp is before every one of us, but there is no need to fall into that miry swamp. There is no need to become discouraged and despondent. There are stepping stones of faith that take us all the way through that miry swamp. But I must confess to you, I have on more than one occasion fallen into that miry swamp. And my heart has grown very discouraged and very heavy, hopeless. Now, this is the turning point. Do I struggle through that swamp of despond and struggle toward the light or do I turn around and go back and say this is a foolish quest my heart will not allow me to turn around and go back for I have nothing to go back to everything that is quote unquote back is of darkness of uncleanness it's of hopelessness it's of despair now because pliable had no conscious awareness of his burden of his sin he thought he could just go back to the city of destruction and be comfortable there and perhaps he can 
being totally unconscious. They tell you the absolute unvarnished truth. My experience as a pastor has been made often most painful by pliable. Pliable is a pleasant person to journey with. But pliable, when his pride is pricked, when he does not have his way, when he begins to hear lies and believes them, when he begins to see what the cost will be if he is going to take this journey to the promised land, he quickly turns aside and says, I'll have nothing to do with that. Pride is an awful thing. It stands in the way and blocks the road. And so many return to the city of destruction, thinking that they have their own piety and everything is fine, but they will not be on the journey. If you're not on the journey, you cannot arrive. Jonathan Edwards talks about this. He says, if you are traveling and you come to a very pleasant place, an inn, and you stay the night, what traveler will wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm not going to go any further on this journey. I'm just going to stay right here in this very pleasant inn. He says, no, no, you get up in the morning and first thing you want to get everything packed and you want to get on the road by daybreak so that you can make progress on your journey. When you fall into the swamp of despond, the journey is delayed, and it is delayed because of carelessness and a lack of faith. No one made you fall into that despondency. No one made you fall into that depression. No one made you fall into that discouragement. It was your own pride my pride the question is which side of the swamp will you climb out on oh you will come out of the swamp but will you climb out of the swamp to go back to the city of destruction or will the incredible incredible drawing love of Jesus call you to continue the journey until you successfully make the other side Now, Bunyan continues. Help said, Give me your hand. Oh, it is so important that we give each other our hand. That we don't just climb out of the miry bog on our own. Help was not in the miry bog, by the way. But he came and offered his hand. He did not say, you deserve what you got. But instead, he drew him out. Sometimes we cannot get out of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And we need someone to offer that hand of help. And that is the work of the church, to offer that hand of help. It's 
my work. It's every Christian's work. So Christian gave him his hand, and he pulled him out, and he set him on solid ground and told him to go on his way. And going over to the man who had pulled him out of the swamp, Christian asked, Sir, since this swamp is right between the city of destruction and the narrow gate, why hasn't someone filled the swamp in so that travelers could walk over it safely? The miry swamp, Help replied, cannot be filled or repaired. It's the low spot where it collects all the scum and filth that goes along with conviction for sin. And that is why it's called the swamp of despond. When a sinner is awakened to his lost condition, then doubts and fears and discouraging apprehensions swell up in his soul, along with other miseries, which all get together and settle in this swamp. That's why the ground is so bad in this place. It is not the pleasure of the king that this place should remain. His labors at the direction of his majesty's surveyors have been trying to repair it for 1,600 years. To the best of my knowledge, this place has swallowed up 20,000 wheelbarrows of wholesome instruction brought from all corners of the king's dominion. But even after all the best material for mending this swamp has been applied, it still remains the swamp of despond. There are, by the direction of the lawgiver, good solid steps placed through the middle of the swamp. But the poor weather and the filth that spews from the swamp sometimes make them hard to see. Even when the weather is good and the steps plainly seen, some men are so confused and so mixed up that they miss the steps and end up in the swamp. And one thing is sure. If you're in the swamp today, we're offering you a hand of help. We're saying Jesus loves you. And so Alexander is going to share from Catherine Booth again today about this hand of help. This comes from an excerpt by Catherine Booth on the subject of mercy and judgment. She takes her text from Romans chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But after your hardness and impenitent heart, you treasure up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will give to every person according to their deeds." Paul wrote some things which, as Peter, a fellow apostle, says are hard to be understood, and which many misinterpret and misapply, as they do also the other scriptures, to their own destruction, and, alas, to the destruction of others also. Perhaps no utterances of man have been more unfairly dealt with than those of the apostle Paul, odd paragraphs having been separated from the arguments or illustrations of which they form a part. These odd paragraphs then made to teach doctrines and dogmas which other parts of his writings show to be entirely at odds with both his spirit and design. In fact, whole systems of theology have been built on some of these isolated paragraphs, systems of theology that are so repulsive to our innate perceptions of goodness and benevolence as they are to the character of God. 
alas, these theories have been pressed on the minds of good and thoughtful people as the true theory of Christianity, and knowing no other, they rejected it altogether and became unbelievers. Until theologians arrive at some settled, consistent, fundamental principle of interpretations, they can make the Bible teach anything, and while they persist that it contradicts itself, they must expect it to be held up to ridicule and contempt. We must always keep in mind that there can be no inconsistency or contradiction in God's mind. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Consequently, when speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles could not contradict themselves. When I was fourteen years old, I rejected all theories about God and religion which contradicted my innate perceptions of right and wrong. I said, no, I will never believe any theory which represents a course that a course of action is good and benevolent in God when that same course would be despicable and contemptible if it were done by human beings. I can't receive it. I could not at that time put my decision into this language, but I remember distinctly the feelings of my soul. I said, no, all that it is there is in me, akin to goodness and truth, God has put there. And I will never believe that what God has put in me contradicts what he's put into this book. That's the Bible. There must be a mistake somewhere. And thank God, I came to the scriptures for myself, which I recommend you to do. Don't imagine that the repulsive views of the character of God which have been forced upon you by professed theologians will form any excuse for your rejection of the Bible or of the divine authority of it in the great day of judgment. God will say, didn't you have the light in you for yourself? For example, you don't shut your natural eyes against the light of the sun and let yourself be led around the world anywhere people choose to lead you. No, you open your eyes and you look where you're going. So why don't you open the eyes of your soul and take in the light of the spiritual sun so that you can walk and not stumble? If you refuse to do this, you will be condemned among those who love darkness rather than light. Don't imagine that the supposed contradictions of the Bible will be an excuse for you at the judgment seat. It's not many weeks ago since a gentleman said to me, While you Christians are arguing, there's hope for us sinners. One person teaches one thing and another something else until a poor fellow doesn't know what he's to believe. Well, that's a comfortable way to put it down here, but when you get to the judgment bar of God, he will say to all such, you wicked and slothful servant, why did you not go to my book for yourself and be at the trouble to get to know my will? We ought to study the Bible as a whole, especially the writings of this apostle, and surely we should take that which is plain and unmistakable as a key to unlock and interpret those things which at first sight seem difficult and contradictory. Isn't this the pr principle which prevails in all rightly constituted human courts? 
are not all human documents judged and disposed of according to this rule? Is it not insisted that these shall be interpreted consistently with themselves and with the general scope and design of the writer? You say yes, and that's the only rational way to interpret. If you were interested in a will which was in dispute, you would have a keen appreciation of the importance of this rule. So, if this is necessary with respect to the writings of men of comparatively recent date, how much more is it necessary with respect to the writings of God? Many of them, having come down to us from ages back, and notwithstanding all the care that's been taken in their preservation, subject to many changes of phraseology, thus requiring in difficult passages the utmost care and skill, and yet not so much skill as honesty, in order to understand their meaning. But after all, there's very little in the word of God which practically affects our salvation which is hard to be understood. The things that Paul wrote on the subject are plain enough, thank God, and this text is one of the plainest and most unmistakable in the whole Bible. Moreover, it's complete in and of itself. It enunciates a great truth which underlies all of God's dealing with the human race. It shows most blessedly that aback of all the Apostle Paul's reasoning about Jews and Gentiles and the predestination of the former to special privileges, special judgments for the abuse of them, that aback of all this he had deep down in his soul the belief and realization of this blessed and glorious truth that all God's dealings with the human race are merciful and restorative, and that in the case of the very worst men, God is doing all he can for their salvation, that God in no single instance consigns to wrath before he has truly and honestly tried to save. Bless the Lord! We ought to get up and sing a song of praise before we go any further. Poor sinner! Don't think there is any de eternal decree barring your way back to pardon and peace. Don't think there is any subtle, mysterious influence beating you back, because God is inviting you close. I want to stop you just a moment. I hope you followed carefully the first part of this reading. Men have taken the words of the Apostle Paul and twisted them and given them special meanings that take away from the blood of Jesus Christ, that take away from his compassionate love and mercy. When a person says in the modern church, and this is of the modern church, I can never stop sinning. God does not have the power to make me stop sinning until I die. And so I must live my life here captive to Satan. It's impossible for anyone to live without sinning. We have bought the modern Gnostic lie. And frankly, we have twisted the word of God to our own detriment. Another example would be the commonly taught belief in this area, also derived from the Apostle Paul, that 
if you aren't elect, you can't be saved. Well, that's not what this text is saying. This text is showing that God is making every effort to save every person. And so there's nothing preventing you from coming to Jesus. You can come to Jesus right now. Yes, right now. But you must be willing to renounce all sin. You must be willing to submit to Jesus. Now, that's not hard and that's not onerous. That's joyful to be able to lay down your addiction to tobacco, to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography, to food, whatever the addiction is, to lay it down right now in the name of Jesus and begin to pray and have your absolute deliverance granted to you instantaneously in Jesus. That's what he came for. And so anyone who says, oh, everybody knows you're going to sin all the rest of your life, they're lying. They're making an excuse to live in their own darkness like pliable. We're calling you out. Come out of that darkness. Come into the love of God. Come into the mercy and the kindness and the justice of God. It's overwhelming how much God loves you. In Romans 2, the passage we're sharing, the Apostle Paul assumes that God is good to all men, even to those who despise his goodness and still perish. He says, do you despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee, that is, is intended to lead thee, to repentance. Moses, early in the world's history, asked the Lord to show him his glory. Moses was one of God's favorites because he chose to be, because he loved and sought after God before anything else. When you forsake the riches of Egypt in all its phases, and choose rather to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, than to dwell in the tents of wickedness or worldliness, you will be one of God's favorites. Let me just add something here. In one of its most basic forms, to be a Christian means to do the right thing regardless of what that costs you. Now, this scripture she uses, I don't want to just blow past it. She says, choose to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness or worldliness. This comes from the Psalms. Now, this doesn't say that you choose to be cast out of the house of God rather than to dwell in the tents of wickedness or worldliness, by which I mean when we come to Jesus, it's very important that we actually have a home in Jesus. So we've been sharing, for example, many stories of Jackie Pullinger's work with heroin and opium addicts in Hong Kong. And the difficulty many of these new converts faced was that they didn't know any way to survive except stealing, lying, committing crime, selling drugs. And it wasn't reasonable to expect this brand new convert to suddenly 
embark on a whole new way of life without any support. She didn't say, well, just stop doing all your crime and we'll pray that God will open up something for you. No, she brought them into her home. And I bring this up because increasingly I've seen in, in the past, say, 10 years or so, I've seen more and more Americans living on the edge financially, living paycheck to paycheck, maybe living off of odd jobs, not even having a steady job, having to stitch together two or three jobs. And what I've seen happen with this is I've seen Christians willing to take on any work. They say, they say I'll be a bartender or I'll work in a distillery because I don't have any other choice. I don't have any other way that I can support myself. I don't have any other way to support my child. And this goes on in the church, and other Christians know about it, and they don't do anything to help the person get out of that situation. Now, we would morally love to see someone come to Jesus and say, all right, I just came to Jesus. I know I can't sell alcohol anymore. So I'm going to quit my job as a bartender, even if it means I'm homeless. Now, we would love to see that position morally, but there's another aspect to that, which is the responsibility of the Christian community into which that person is entering. We can't say, as it says in 1 John, or in the book of James, also addresses this, when someone is in need, we don't just say, well, God bless you, be warmed and filled, and don't do anything to help them. So there's an important connection here between righteousness and between the practical acts of love in the Christian community. If we really want righteous, holy converts, we have to be willing to be there to support them in the interim while they transition out of their life, which has been dependent on sin, and transition into a life that is based and dependent and supported financially by righteousness. Our first call as Christians is to love one another, to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and body, and to love one another they will know you are Christians by the love you have one for another. This is what Bunyan is speaking about with the man help as he came and extended his, extended his hand of help to pull Christian out of the swamp of despond. Well, could I say extending the hand of help to pull a new Christian out of a bartending job? and help them into another job? That's the hand of help. In other words, our job is not to get ahead in the world. Our job is to extend the hand of help to those who desperately need it to draw them to Jesus or to help sustain them as they come to Jesus and as they begin to walk with Jesus with integrity. They need that hand of help. That's what you're talking about. Absolutely. And this is something that it doesn't require an institution. You can do it as an individual person. And, and don't be discouraged if you say, I don't have the money. But take on that person's needs in prayer and pray for them as if you were praying for yourself. So in other words, if you were in a bartending job, you would be praying and asking Jesus for a way out. So you can take on that person's need as if it were yours 
and pray for them and then help them as the Lord opens the way for you. Now I'll tell you what happened today. We went to a, a lunch place. We know the manager. And the manager stood at the cash register and said, what are you ordering today? We told him. And then he added food to it, and he gave it to us free of charge. He brought it to our table. So as, we're, as we were driving there, there was a homeless woman. My heart went out to her. But I knew we needed to take care of us with food so we could come and do this broadcast. So we're leaving the place, and my wife pulls $9 out, and she said, I want to give this to the homeless woman. I said, is that every penny you have? Yes, it is. All right, let's go find her. And we went and found this precious woman that we've spoken to before, we've encouraged before, we've prayed with before, and gave her that money. And my wife said, the Lord gave us lunch free of charge because he wanted that lunch money to go to this homeless person. A hand of help was extended. We're speaking about very practical holding out the hand of help. Yes, and honestly, I feel like help helping with $9 is, is really almost nothing. And I, I'm really... I'm working more now, as I've shared on this broadcast before, about getting more invested and involved with people to really make a significant change in their lives so that they actually get out of that oppressed position that they're in and they're able to stand on their own two feet. And we're doing that with time, with energy, and with love. That being said, I do still think it's valuable to give to the homeless people I see. I just don't think that that's where it should stop. It needs to go far beyond that. Well, we have about four minutes left in the broadcast. Is there anything else you'd like to share to wrap up your portion? We've just been sharing from Catherine Booth. She was the co-founder of the Salvation Army, along with her husband, William Booth. I thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this broadcast has encouraged you. If you are not yet a Christian... If you are still burdened by sin, as we shared from the story today, I hope this broadcast has encouraged you that you don't have to keep carrying around that burden of sin. You can get to Jesus, and he will free you completely. He'll set you on solid ground and give you a new life of peace and righteousness so that you can serve him and serve others. And for those of you who are Christians, I hope that this has encouraged you to reach out to other people today and help them come to know the peace and righteousness that's in Jesus Christ. And we invite you to come to the Little House Church. You're welcome to call for the National Prayer Chapel address. Call me, 703-489-1785. Obstinate, you don't need to call. And pliable, you don't need to call. We want men and women who are serious about getting the burden of sin 
off their back, or men and women who want to reach out and help others get that burden of sin cut off their back. So you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. How can they reach us? You can write to us. We are Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. Our mailing address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That address again is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also contact us through our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can also listen to this message again, as well as past messages, send a prayer request, make a donation. There's many things to do on the website. We encourage you to visit it. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for National Prayer Chapel. We also want to let you know that a check is prepared and will be sent to cover the entire amount of Pilgrim's Progress for the month of October. One of our listeners has sent the final $350. We praise God for each one of you who gives. This is a faith ministry. We cannot do it without Jesus moving in your heart to give, to be generous. The cry of our heart is for the lost and the dying, The cry of our heart is for Christians who have not found a place of rest in Jesus. We encourage you. Jesus loves you, and so do we. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. Before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.